Colossians 3 is our passage, and in verse 10, the Apostle Paul says, because of all that Christ has done for you, put on the new self, which is being renewed in the image after its creator. And as you understand what Christ has done for you, he says, here, there is no Jew or Greek, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free. But Christ is in all and is all. So you, you glory in the greatness of Christ. You see, things change, but our standing in Christ, the character of the living God, His purposes for us do not change. For example, just a few weeks ago we celebrated St. Patrick's Day. On March the 17th, many people wear green and they celebrate and they talk about being Irish and how much fun that is and we have parades and it's just Irish. And we have the Notre Dame fighting Irish and we have people who travel to Europe. I've never been to Ireland. People who travel to Europe say that unquestionably one of their favorite countries is Ireland because of the grace and the friendliness of the people and the fun atmosphere of being in Ireland. So we celebrate being Irish, but if you know history, that has not always been the case. In 1845, the country of about 7 million people in Ireland had a potato famine that lasted seven years, and 1 million people died of starvation. 1 million. Another million left the country. Most of them came to the U.S., and they were in places where there was little economic viability and there, was, there were gangs and there was corruption and there was crime and there was drunkenness. And to be Irish in America in the 1850s and 60s and 70s and later was considered to be a very unpopular thing. In fact, there was a political party started in the United States called the Know Nothing Party. And they actually had congressmen elected from the Know Nothing Party and their platform was we're against Catholics and we're against Irish. Things change. Today we celebrate Irish. Today the British Broadcasting Corporation two weeks had a huge series on the joy of being Irish. Things change, but your standing in Christ is not. Things change nationally. Did you know that today in China, the average Chinese consumes 17 times more than they did 20 years ago? Just think about it. 17 times more. David Goldman, a senior fellow of the London Institute for Policy Studies and a columnist for Asia Times, has written, quote, China is a phenomena unlike anything that's ever happened in economic history, close quote. The incredible growth of China's economy. Did you know in the last 20 years, 600 million people in China have left the countryside and moved to the teeming cities on the coast? 600 Million. The population of this country is about 330 million. So almost twice our whole population has moved from the countryside into the cities. Things change. But our standing in Christ does not. Because the Bible says in Colossians 1 verse 21 that, that, that you who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds have now been reconciled in the body of the flesh of Christ by his death. We're new people in Christ. History changes. In the 16th century, there was a nation, and it was said of this nation, the sun never sets on the Spanish Empire. 16th century. 
Today, Spain is an economic mess, experiencing internal conflict. Uh, it's anything but a favored nation. And in the 19th century, 20th century, first part of the 20th century, the statements made the sun never sets on the British Empire. And today, the British Empire is no more. In 1897, the Ladies' Home Journal had an article that said, the sun never sets on Uncle Sam. And when the century started, new century started 18 years ago, there were numerous books written by scholarly people who said that, that this is the American century, that this is the century when the, the, uh, America is the uber power, the hyper power, the, the hegemonic power. No one can rival us. But you know what? Nations come and nations fall. Colossians 2.13, though, your standing in Christ does not change. It says this, that, and you who were dead in your trespasses and your uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive with Christ. He has forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands, nailing it to the cross. That's unchanging. Politics come and go. March of 1991, shortly after Desert Storm 1, there was a president in office named George H.W. Bush. His approval rating in March of 1991 was 89%. 89%. It's never been, ever been higher than that for any sitting president before or since. Amazing, 89%. In fact, the general election was only a year and a half away, and there were articles in major periodicals. I remember it saying, who will be the sacrificial lamb from the Democratic Party that will run against Bush because he is unbeatable. And yet, in August of 1992, just a few years and four months later, Bush's approval rating was 29%, 87 to 29. And a novice from Arkansas, a governor by the name of Bill Clinton, was swept into office in 1992. I mean, politics change. Popularity comes and goes. But what does not change is the reality of Christ and his love for his people. And that, that's why, you know, verse 10 says, be renewed, and then it says, here, 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 here. Our identity is in Christ, not in being circumcised or uncircumcised or a Greek or a Jew or, or a slave or free. Our identity is Christ, because that doesn't change. That just doesn't change. And so in this sweeping passage, the Apostle Paul says in verse 5 of chapter 3, put to death the anti-God energy that still resides in you. Put it to death. And, and then he lists five qualities that deal with the sins of the flesh, sexual immorality, impurity, evil desires, passions, and covetousness. And he says, but because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. And he says, you guys used to walk in these. These sins used to, to, used to kind of define your lives, but not anymore. He says, you're, you're new people in Christ. He says, therefore, he says, put on a new garment that says hearts of loving kindness and compassion and humility and meekness and patience and, and be forbearing with each other. You know, just be, just be forbearing, just, just hang in there and forgive each other as you've been forgiven in Jesus Christ. You must forgive. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. What an incredible statement. He says, you're, you're new people in Christ. He says, and as you're new people in Christ, he says, you're, you're, you, you, your feet are planted in the reality and the order of the word, and you press into the chaos around you, and you claim it for Christ. So be, 
be the people that God has called you to be. And so we come to this passage, I began it last week, but how, how to preserve and increase the joy and the hope and the forbearing and the forgiveness and the kindness and the meekness and the patience and the humility that Paul's talking about in verses 12 and following. In our families, in our relationships, in our marriages, and in our church. How do we preserve and increase that? And, and he says this, let, let, listen, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, the totality of your being. Let it be the umpire, the arbiter. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Just stop there. So, so he, what he's saying is here is continually press into the glory and the goodness of the gospel. The peace of Christ purchased for you on the cross. Continuously press into the glory and the goodness of the forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ. I'll give you a definition that I got from a book. I added a couple, a phrase here. A, a disciple is, is a forgiven sinner who is learning Jesus Christ in repentance and faith as they walk in community. That's what Paul's saying. He's a forgiven sinner. A forgiven sinner who continually learns from Christ as they walk in repentance and faith and walk in community. He says, he says let these things grip your heart. The book of Hebrews is written to a group of people who were beginning to kind of push away from their faith. And so Paul trumpets the greatness of Christ and the ultimate work of Christ. And he says in chapter 5 something that's very, not the, the writer of Hebrews, it could have been Paul. We don't know. But the writer of Hebrews says something that is, is, is very strong. He talks about some strong doctrine going into chapter 6, which is strong doctrine. But he says this in verse 12 of Hebrews chapter 5, or chapter 5, verse, we'll start in verse 12. He says, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need for someone to once again teach you the elementary principles of the Word of God. And you've come to need milk and not solid food. And then he says this in verse 13. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled, see, in the word of righteousness because he's a child. Unskilled. Verse 14. But, but solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So, so he says, be skilled in applying the scripture. Be skilled in understanding and appropriating the Word of God by constant practice. Be skilled laborers. So let the peace of Christ rule so you can be skilled laborers. In Acts 20, the Apostle Paul is saying goodbye to the Ephesian elders that he labored with for three years. And, and, and it's a tender moment and Paul says to them, he says, you'll never see my face again. Because the Holy Spirit testifies that wherever I go, there are ways chains and imprisonments and hardship. And th this is it. And then they wept together. And, and the Apostle Paul says this. He says, I consider my life worth nothing if only I may finish the course and complete the task the Lord Christ has given me of testifying to the gospel of grace. Paul says, I want to finish 
the race and complete the task. That's what I want to do. So you let the peace of Christ rule, church, rule. And he says this, because you've been called to one body, called to one body. Now, when we do the Apostles' Creed, we say we believe in the Holy Catholic Church, Catholic small c, universal. There is one people of God throughout all the ages who have trusted in the work of Jesus as their Savior on the cross. And they're made up of all types of people from all types of denominations and all types of ethnicities and backgrounds, but we believe in the Holy Catholic Church. But the Holy Catholic Church has local manifestations, and this is a local church. The church that Paul wrote to was the, a local church in Colossae. The New Testament letters, vast majority are written to local churches. And so he says here, you've been called to one body. You've been called to a local body of believers. Now, brief historical background. So in the 19, late 70s and 80s, the Southern Baptist Convention said that, that every major denomination, without exception, has drifted to the left into, into theological liberalism. So therefore, we want to be very careful and guard ourselves from drifting that way. And there's a, an incredible battle for a number of years about where we're going theologically. And I was always with the conservatives because I believe the issue was and is the character of God and the Word of God. And, and if you have somebody that comes along and says, well, you know, Paul, Paul was right about the cross, but wrong about X, Y, and Z, you go, well, pretty soon you're going to say he's wrong about the cross. So it's just basic biblical hermeneutic. So I, I was always kind of in at seminary and, and afterwards debating people who called themselves moderates who, who slowly went into liberalism, as happened in, inevitably. And, and so as I had these debates with people, and, and they were usually pretty gracious debates, they would always say, well, I know what you're saying, but, but I believe in the priesthood of the believer. And what they meant by that was this. I, I believe that it's me and, me and my Bible and the way I interpret it against the world. I don't really care what the church has said historically. I don't care about confessions of faith. I don't care what, what Jude chapter 3, verse 3 says, the faith once and all delivered to the saints. I, I don't believe that. I believe in the priesthood of the believer. And then they turn, use a term called soul competency, which always drove me crazy. And, and whenever they said that, I, I think of a, a, an incredible movie that was released, one of the greatest movies ever made in 18, excuse me, 1987, September 1987. It should have won the Academy Award 10 years, 10 years run. It was so good. It's called The Princess Bride. Yeah. I, it's just a fun movie. And there's a guy in there named Indigo Montoya. And he's having, he's, somebody uses the word and he says, you keep using that word. I do not think that word means what you think it means. I, sometimes I argue with people theologically. I do not think that word means what you think it means. So says Indigo Montoya. And I said, well, the priest of the believer means, means this. In fact, the, the term comes from a paper written in 15 and 20 by a guy named Martin Luther in a little tract called An Address to the German Nobility. And Martin Luther said this. He said, we no longer need priest because we are all priests before God. There's no longer a need for a priesthood that they're told in the medieval church that these holy men represent you to God because there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, therefore. We are all priests before God. And that, that, that's where that comes from. The priesthood of the believer. And it's based upon several passages, but one of them is in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, where Peter says this. He says, 
And as you come to Christ, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So he says all members of a church are like individual stones. And these individual stones are put together by Christ to be an edifice that glorifies him. So, so the, the priesthood of the believer uh, means this. I'll go over this very quickly. There's no earthly mediator necessary. We have one mediator. His name is Christ. Number two, it means that gifts are given for the purpose of building up brothers and sisters in Christ. For example, 1 Peter 4, verse 10 says, as each one has received a special gift, employ it as serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. So every person here who's a believer in Jesus by the Holy Spirit has been gifted. He says, he says this, whoever speaks or really teaches, let him teach as if it were the utterances of God. Be careful what you say. Whoever serves, let him do so by the strength that God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to the praise of his name. So, so everybody's received a gift. And then thirdly, it means that we're to be people who joyfully and with responsibility serve others and represent Christ. That's what it means to be the priest of the believer. So every person here has been gifted if you're a follower of Christ. Every person here is responsible. Every person here rejoices that they go to the Lord directly because of the shed blood of Christ, not because of some office of people who represent you before the Lord. There's only one priest whose name is Christ, ultimately. So my, my question is, what is your calling or your giftedness in blessing people and representing Christ if, if you're a believer? What is your sweet spot? What, what brings you refreshment? Let me just speak about me for a second. So <clears throat> I love to study and to preach. I do. I'm almost every Sunday I leave here really encouraged. Sometimes I'm, I'm not, but, 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 but I do. I love being a pastor. I love this church. I love, I love you guys. I like to be with you usually, most of the time. You know? you know, they're, they're, any, any family has relationships where you go, this is, this is going to be hard. And it is. It, it, it's, 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 so, so what I do not, so, and there's, there are people here who have the gift of administration. I think that's a spiritual gift. You, you understand systems and putting together and cobbling things together and, and, and bolting things on. And, and boy, I thank God for you guys. That is not me. And so my attention span in a, in a major meeting is not that long. So let me tell you what happened last Monday. Last Monday we had a 6.30 elder steering committee meeting. Started at 6.30. Boom. Um, and I had meeting after meeting after meeting after meeting, even at lunch. Somebody said, we need to have a meeting, let's meet over lunch. So we grabbed lunch and had a meeting. After, and so at 3 o'clock, I was still in the meeting, and I said, I'm, I'm sorry, guys, I've got a 3.15 appointment with a dentist. I, I'm, I had to have a feeling put in. And I left with joy. <laughs> now, you have to realize, if you, if you leave and you're happy to go to the dentist. That's a statement. And I like my dentist. He's a nice guy and does a good job. But, and, you know, I went to the dentist. He put it in, and he couldn't feel my jaw for several hours. And, 
Uh, but that was much better than that meeting I was in. So you, you understand that. So, so the, the question is, what, what, where's God called you to serve? So years ago, I was on a board of trustees at a school in Missouri. And I was on board for 10 years. And I, I, I was on several committees. And one time I was on a committee which interviewed incoming professors, potentially. They had to pass our board. And there was a big old guy, a PhD in Greco-Roman studies in the Greek language, strong, came before us. His name was Alan Tomlinson. And he taught the school for 20, over 20 years. And so we're sitting there and we're supposed to ask him questions. And I said, you know, could you explain uh, the background to the Ephesians fertility cult and how that impacted the book of Ephesus? Or the Ephesians? And, and I was expecting a two-sentence answer. He went on for 20 minutes. I mean, he just, a, a stream of narration. I was just going, wow. I mean, I was, he lost me 30 seconds into his answer. But I was incredibly impressed. And he was just a gracious guy, smarter than I could be in three lifetimes. And so as I got to know him one day at a meeting, we were having lunch, and I said, I said, Alan, what, other than teaching at the seminary, what really refreshes you? He said, I'll tell you what refreshes me. He said, every Sunday at my local church, I teach six-year-olds the Bible. And I went, a, a PhD, I mean, a double PhD, incredibly bright. And his sweet spot was teaching six-year-olds the Bible. I, don't, I can't tell you how that, that ministered to me. That that, that, that was his comment. And I think, thanks be to God for people who see the next generation as a point of pouring their lives into children. And I tell you right now, we have a wonderful children's department. We need children's workers. We have a lot of workers who have been doing it for a long time. And, and they're, it's like a tag team match. They, they need to tap out just for a while. And Steve Tuck and his team, they do a great job. But thanks be to God for our children and for Palmetto Christian Academy and for the people that see the next generation as being incredibly important. What's your sweet spot? And while I'm going, I'm going to take a side road. So just, it's a side road, okay? It's not in the text, it's a side road. Two weeks ago, we had Easter. Loved Easter. We had a wonderful time. We had a big group of people over our house. It was a beautiful day and but, but here's the, the hard thing for me about Easter is I see people at Easter that I haven't seen in months. And I go, how you doing? Doing great. Everything okay? Yeah, everything's fine. Great to see you, man. I'm going, oh. And, and so some churches have a little box they check called infrequent worshipers. That's the most oxymoronic phrase in the world. If you are a follower of Christ, you are a worshiper. You should be in worship. You should be with the body of Christ. So I, saw, I see these people that I see only occasionally. Man, two things go through my mind. Number one is I think, are you really regenerate, saved under the blood of Jesus? Are you really there? Because, because the Bible says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And if you come to church once or twice every 33 or four months or every year, that's not fear and trembling that's just kind of casual nothingness. Now, I don't know their hearts. So I, I just, that's a concern. See, if, if you are a Jesus follower and you receive the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit compels you to do certain things. The Holy Spirit doesn't let you off the hook. If you're involved in ongoing, unrepentant sin, you should be miserable. And the Holy Spirit says, get with God's people. 
Love the body of Christ. The second thing I think about is, is you know, you're missing out on joy. It is joyful to be used to the Lord. It is joyful to serve people. It is a refreshing thing to care for those around us. So we'll never have a box that says infrequent worshipers. So I, I, look, at, I look at this whole thing about, about call to one body and, and, and giftedness. And, and I, I think about, about um, two, two things have happened last year that just enormously encouraged me. And one is a, a ministry under our, our, our fam ministry, our adoption ministry and family ministry called, called uh, Families Count. It just started a few months ago. Families Count, this, this is unbelievably cool. So, explain to me. so Families Count is a faith-based approved program by the courts. And we have the only one in Charleston County. And what they do is you, you, you're, you're struggling with your family, your kids may be in foster care because of a number of issues, and so you're really down. Everybody gets down. down, down. Everybody needs help. But they're really down. They're, 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 it's a bad situation. So the court says you've got to go through several steps to get your kids back. And one step you can go through is this six-week course at this local church where they talk about responsibility and parenting. And we just preach Christ and responsibility. And we feed them, and we assign them mentors who walk with them for six weeks and beyond, and we give them, we, we go and get them. It requires 15 to 20 people just to teach, plus mentors and plus people to drive. It's a big undertaking. It is wonderful. It's, it's wonderful. And we've seen some really good results. This is our third rotation now. It's, it's so good. It makes Jesus happy. I believe that. You're doing it the least of these, and people that are down, don't, and they can minister to others later. I, it's, um, it's just a God thing. It's court approved. I mean, the court says you can go to this church, and we, we just preach Christ. We give them a Bible. They just, you gave me a Bible? We feed them. We give them a big meal, we feed them. And we do that. That's what you do. The other thing that I've been very encouraged with is, is something called Reengage. It's a family program, a, a marriage program. And whether you've been married for one month or for, I met somebody after church this morning who's been married for 47 years, they're doing Reengage. Uh, it's just biblical principles about how to make your marriage stronger. Because we all, we all need help in our marriages. You just, and, and one of the things when we engage is they stay inside your hula hoop. Get, deal with your own sin and not your spouse's. I'm really pretty good at telling you your sin and tell my wife her sin, but not really seeing my sin. So get inside your hula hoop. It's, it's just a, a great program. We've probably had 150 couples go through re-engage in the last year. It's, not, it's unbelievable. And I've talked to couples whose lives have been changed by the Holy Spirit as they study the Bible and what it means to be married. So, so all of these things, so, but these happen because people in our church said, we feel compelled to do this. We said, just do it. So here's the principle. You can write down the flyleaf of your Bible. As the glory of sins forgiven by the cross and the hope of heaven progressively seizes my heart, I will be gracious and easy to live with. 
I'll be grace-filled and easy to live with. I, I just, I, I believe that. I need Christ. So, so if we're going to have fertile relationships and family and marriages and church, we've got to let the peace of Christ which flows from the cross rule in our hearts because we've been called to one body and be thankful. There's a hymn written in 1872 by a guy from Iowa, and it's an old hymn some of us raised in a hymn singing church will remember the words. It goes like this. I, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. Oh, how marvelous. Oh, how wonderful. And my song shall ever be. I stand amazed in the presence. It's amazing. God's grace restores and it heals and it brings cohesion. I recommend a book to you by a guy named Hugh Hewitt. I like Hugh Hewitt. Read his I read his, uh, go to his website frequently. He's a good thinker. He wrote a book entitled The Happiest Life of All, which kind of grabs your attention. And he says that there are seven attitudes that make for a happy life. And he, he sprinkles, he talks about people and he sprinkles biblical references all throughout the book. But uh, he, he says the seven attitudes are be an encourager, uh, be enthusiastic about life. Uh, have high energy, be empathetic, hurt with people that are hurting and rejoice with people that are hurting, have a good sense of humor, be a person who is gracious, and be someone who expresses gratitude. Those are the seven things. And he talks about seven key groups in your life, your, your spouse, your kids, your extended family, your coworkers, so forth and so on. It's a good book. If you ever asked me to give, though, a critique, I'd say the first chapter should have been this. And he would, agree, he would agree with this, I think. Know the glory of the person of Jesus and the forgiveness of sin. Because all of those attitudes flow from, flow from understanding the cross. That's why Paul says, and be thankful. See, I believe we should be encouragers. Because God loves us and cares for us. I believe we should be enthusiastic because God is the king of our lives and he's gifted us. I think we should be full of energy because God calls us to one live, to live one life that counts. And I think we should be empathetic because the Bible says be empathetic. I think we should have a sense of humor. I mean, really, come on. Don't take yourself so seriously. I think we should be people of gratitude and gracious. This flows from the cross. Verse 16, very quickly, says this. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, which means luxuriantly, teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom. I think with all wisdom means making strong glorious application of the word to your life. Teaching and admonishing are two different words. They have two different uh, points of interest. Teaching means to give out information about the character of God and the theology that flows from the character of God. Admonishing means to encourage and build up and strengthen or correct. So I think every, all preaching and teaching should have those two elements, some more, some less. You, you instruct and give truth and you, and you encourage and build up and correct. But the, the, the issue is this, let the Word of God loose in your life. Be people of the book. In Deuteronomy, the writer Moses is talking about 
what type of people the children of Israel should be. And he says, you know, verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all your might. And these words I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and as frontless between your eyes. In other words, get, get the word in your life. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Be people of the book because God changes us by the Holy Spirit. See, teach your children. Teach them, your grandchildren. Let me just advocate this. This is the New City Catechism. There's, you can go to the website and the worship guide. 52 questions. They'll help you develop a good mind theologically. There's the adult version and the children's version. This is really cool. The children's version, of course, is a child, child's answer. And, and, and it has accompanying songs to sing with them. So you sing it to each other. It's just, it's really good. Good too. For example, this is week 16 of 19, or excuse me, 2018. And week 16, I just went to question 16, what is sin? This is the catechism. Answer, sin is rejecting or ignoring God in the world he created. Rebelling against him by living without reference to him. Not being or doing what he requires in his law, resulting in our death and the disintegration of, our, of all creation. You know, sin disintegrates and destroys. Grace binds up and builds. Disintegration versus building, church. So, so I, I, I won't, and then there's the, the, the children's answer is much shorter, but, but, but listen, teach, teach your children and your grandchildren. Man, I tell you, what a, what a joy, you know, to have grandchildren. I uh, uh, have a wonderful grandson here, and we have a grandson and granddaughter on the West Coast. We're going to see them on Wednesday, God willing. I can't wait. And at four times a week, thank God for Skype. Four times a week, we Skype our family in Washington State. And our grandson, two and a half years old, is there. He's just there. He loves to Skype us, really, his grandmother more than me. But I'm part of the package. That's just the way it goes. So I'm, I'm, I'm trying to catechize my two-and-a-half-year-old grandson. So I'm, I'm doing the children's catechism with him, kind of, sort of. This is a prelude to the shorter catechism. Before we go to the New City Catechism, I say, the first question is, who made you God? What else did God make? Everything. Why did God make you? For his glory. How do we glorify God? By loving him and doing what he says. Question five, um, why should we glorify him? Because he loves us and cares for us. Right now, we're still in question two, all right? We're, we're working now. So I'll say to him, I'll say, Gideon, almost every time we Skype, I'll say, Gideon, who made you? And he says, God. <laughs> He's very serious about it, God. And I, I say, well, wh wh what else did God make? And he got, gets this puzzled look on his face, and he says, Gigi, his grandmama, I said, yeah. Papa, that's me. Then he looks around the room. Daddy, mm -hmm. Mama, mm -hmm. Baby, his little sister calls her Baby, baby. Mm -hmm. 
And there's a, there's a beautiful black lad that lives, lives next door that's in their house a lot. And he'll call the dog by name. I can't tell you the name because it's PG-13, okay? I can't tell you the name. So he'll call the dog's name. And, and he'll, he'll just name whoever's in the room. So one of these, one of these days, I'm going to call him. He's going to go through all that. And he's going to go, Coach Sweeney? I'm saying, is Dabo there? You know, it's never too young to recruit a five-star athlete. Go for it, you know? So anyway, um, he, he does that. And it's a joy to my heart. I want to help shape the character of my grandkids to think well. And it doesn't happen automatically. It happens through love and training and encouragement. So, so listen, how do you promote the glory of Jesus in your lives? You let the word of Christ dwell in you richly with all wisdom. Thus endeth the lesson, as they say in some churches, whatever that means. I do have something else I want to say. Um, so we, we, just a few weeks ago, I announced that we collected $450,000 for Lottie Moon, um, which was more than we've ever done by far. And usually the elders seed Lottie Moon with money from the previous year, and we didn't do that this year. And so the giving was really, really, really strong. So thanks be to God for that. Uh, there are people in this church who are, who are giving and gracious and caring, and they serve and they care and they give and they serve and they care and they give. So thank you for that. I do want you to know this, that as we've, we're putting together a budget that will begin again in August 1, 2018 to 19. We go from August to July. At, at this time in our church giving, we're about 200,000, a little more, below budget giving. So we're cutting back on our budget for next year. We have put a, a freeze on all hires. Uh, we've cut back programs 10%. Um, so, so I just let you know that because I, I told the elders the other day, I said, I, we haven't told our church about this. And so just know that. And our giving is the same level as last year, except last year somebody walked in off the street and gave us a $200,000 check. I don't know who that was. Nobody told me that, but I just know that. $200,000. So listen, our church is off, open Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday this week. <laughs> so uh, it's open 8 o'clock tomorrow morning. If there's a line outside the, the, the receptionist's desk, I'll be thrilled beyond words. But uh, I want you to know that. So I just encourage you to be faithful people. We're managing our budget, Gene Beckman and the finance Elder Committee and the Finance Department are, are managing the budget very well, so we're thankful for that. But just know that um, as the people of God. Thanks for your faithfulness. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this day and for the, the goodness of the gospel. Thank you that um, our enthusiasm and encouragement and energy, empathy, sense of humor, graciousness, gratitude. It just flows from the gospel. So let the gospel be supreme in our lives, we pray. Have mercy upon us for the sake of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.